just come through uh, two weeks of a great missions festival, and I want to say thank you to Mary Ann and Brad and the missions team and so many people who made that just a, a great a couple of weeks together of speakers that were here. It was just a, a real time of challenge and encouragement and blessing in all kinds of different ways. And so as we, we took those two weeks off to kind of focus in that direction, we now want to return back to our series that we began a number of weeks ago uh, in the new year uh, called Entrusted. And this truth that we have been entrusted with this good news of who Jesus Christ is. And it's grounded in the text of Timothy and Titus, these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to these missionaries in these outposts. And so here in the, the book of Timothy, we're looking at, at this letter that Paul wrote to this young leader in a church in Ephesus who, as we've talked about some, was going through many challenges, had many uh, unique circumstances that he was facing, and Paul is encouraging him and also giving him instructions uh, to him, and then indirectly also, as we've talked about, through the church. One of the things about walking through the text as we're doing in this series and just going through chapter by chapter and largely verse by verse and, and just digging into the texts that are there is that it, it doesn't allow you to sort of avoid the awkward ones. You, know? you, you sort of have to kind of give some attention to those that are even challenging in one way or another. And so today we, we step into what I think could be called one of the most controversial texts in all of Scripture. Now, I don't think that that's actually an overstatement, because I think many of us know, and maybe you don't know that, I mean, churches have been divided over this text, conferences have split, uh, people have accused people of all kinds of things related to this text and others that might relate to it, that people are just too loose with Scripture, way too liberal on how you understand or think about Scripture. Maybe others say that, well, you're way just too rigid. Others say that you're too shallow. Others say that, well, you're just sexist. And many other things. So people have been called many things. People have approached this text with different convictions and, and in different postures and attitudes and so on. Uh, and so we know it's a challenging text also a text that some of the greatest Bible scholars uh, in the world who have given their lives to studying Scripture, given their lives even to studying the original languages and know the original languages and have studied this text, text in depth and have taught in colleges and seminaries for years and years and years, these biblical scholars, men and women who have researched and who understand and dig into Scriptures for a living. What's humbling is that they can come down on very different perspectives on this text. There isn't this universal agreement about what it means. And so there can be all kinds of disagreement on this text. We need to realize that. So, what's all the fuss about? Well, it's a text about women. Women are complex. This text is complex. So that's more of it. But it's actually a text about prayer and about worship. And that's really the broader context, and, and even the, the title of the sermon today, of of what this text is really speaking to. It's speaking about prayer and worship and how it is that we gather together in community. And yes, it does focus specifically on some things for men and also more pointedly on some things for women that we, we have some challenges with. And so we, we want to look at it in that context of worship and prayer. But it's also a text that kind of challenges us of how we read the Bible and how we interpret Scripture. And so there's all kinds of things, as we will see, that are, are part of 
it also raises a number of things, a number of issues within us, and, and I want to just say that this text requires, I think, humility. Given what I even just said about different Bible scholars and how they come at it and kind of land in different places, it, it humbles me when I come to this text. And I want to, even as what I present here today, I want to do so with humility. I think it requires that of all of us. I also think that it requires grace. Grace is something that is needed and unfortunately has not always been something that has been part of this discussion when it comes to this. This is a text that should never split a church, and yet it has in so many places. So given what I said about others in context and and the extent that, that others have passionately embraced and gone into this text in different ways, we need to extend grace to one another. I need your grace, even this morning, and I won't answer all your questions, and we will leave with maybe some other questions and follow-up things, and maybe I'll say things that will come out wrong or whatever. But So we all need grace as we discuss this. And hopefully in your small groups, you'll be taking some time to discuss these as well, too. And you've got an insert there that gives you a study guide of just a starting point of how you might talk about this text. But it's also a text that reveals our bias. And it was interesting, in our lifetime class that happens at 9.30 to 10.15, and, and again, any of you are welcome there to be a part of that. And one of those is called Sermon Prequel, and we, we gather together, and there's a group of us, there's about 10 or 12 of us there today, and we talk about uh, some of our biases. As we, What is it that shapes us? What is it that we, we come to a text with? Because we all have them. And, and this idea that we come to Scripture in a completely neutral way is, is just not accurate. It's not reality. It's not true. Some of the biases we're aware of, and we can see them and acknowledge them, and other biases we're just not even aware of. We don't even notice them. We need others to kind of notice them for us from time to time. And I'll, I'll share some of my own biases in just a few minutes. But I remember when I, I started out in pastoral ministry, and one of the phrases that sometimes people would say to me was they'd say, Bruce, you know, just preach the Bible. Or they would say, you know what, we just need really solid Bible teaching. Now, you need to know that, that for most people who would say that, it's great intentions and they meant all the best things. But I also have come to learn over the years that sometimes when people say that, sometimes what they mean is they, they mean preach the Bible in the way that I want it to be preached. Preach the Bible in, in terms of the flavor and sort of the way that I understand it and my expression. Sometimes some people mean it in that way. And, and so I started to realize, yeah, you know, I, I don't know that we come to Scripture without biases. We, we come with different understandings and things that have influenced us in one way or another. David Ewart is a, a Bible scholar, and he passed away in just 2010. Many of you would know him. He taught 65 years. Uh, he had a teaching ministry for over 65 years. He was a patriarch here, our Mennonite brethren in Toronto, the church he was a part of. And uh, he's got five earned doctor degrees, including a Ph.D. from uh, McGill and uh, and different places. Like, like, just profoundly wise man. And he wrote this one article once, and it was entitled this. It was reading the Bible through colored glasses. And the whole premise of it is, is that we all come to Scripture with some kind of coloring on our glasses. We don't come to Scripture neutral. And the term that he uses is that we all have free understanding. All of us have some free understandings and this idea that we just need to be honest with them and, and at times even hold them out from ourselves a little bit more objectively so that we can look at them and analyze them, maybe even at times critique them. So this text reveals our biases and it also, I think, reveals our convictions. I hope it does. Because we need to come with convictions and, and our convictions won't always be the same. 
But these convictions lead to very significant implications. And again, I'll share some of mine in, in just a minute. But convictions are important. Um, they matter because they shape how we think about the text like this. And it also shapes how the church responds and lives the life. So let's let's read the text. I encourage you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2. And we're going to be reading verses 8 to 15. So we're continuing on where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Paul is instructing Timothy, and again, remember, he's writing this this letter to Timothy and letting the church, I'm sure, listen in, and it will come to the church in in different ways, but he's writing to his young uh, disciple here, and he says, "In in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands up to God, free from anger and controversy, and I want women to be modest in their appearance, and they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way that they fix their hair by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Women should learn quiet life and submissiveness. I do not let women teach men or have authority over men, over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made woman. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sinned both with him. But women will be saved from childbearing, assuming that they continue to live in faith, love, today and in our world, as the world sort of looks in on the church, and if they were to read this, they'd say, what in the world is going on? And so we have to ask some of those questions of, well, what in the world is going on here? How are we to understand this text? How how are we to, you know, embrace this and, and live it out in the church? And how does it become a relevant text for us today? How do we think about it? And so we, we see, I think, immediately that there are some challenges that are there for understanding the text in its original context and also understanding the text for us today. Now, there are two common views that are all often framed in this way, and I wanted to just touch on them briefly, that are two sort of camps or perspectives of how people come at this. And so the first one is called complementarianism. And so a complementarian is somebody who, and again, this is very simplified, but restricts women in terms of, uh, it's a view that calls women to equally important but complementary roles within the church. So ministry roles in this view are differentiated by gender. And, and that view is, is largely kind of held on to by texts such as this, also texts uh, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul in another church setting is writing to the church and says women should be silent during the church meeting. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If you have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it's improper for women to speak in church meetings. So texts such as that and, and others are part of that view, and, and that's how people come to those views. Then there's the egalitarian approach. So and this is one where it's viewed that there's no biblical gender-based restrictions. There's equal opportunities for both genders. And one text that is often held out for that one is Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. When Paul says in another setting, he says, For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ by putting on new clothes. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. 
so this text and others are ones that those who hold this egalitarian approach would, would grab onto and they would put those at a higher level. So the first view, the complementarian one, would, would emphasize maybe a little bit more the literal interpretation of the text. The latter would maybe more strongly emphasize the original context. To say, oh, the context is really, really important here and we have to understand it. So those are some differences and we could talk at length about some of that. There's one commentator, and his name is Walter Lightfield, and his approach to these two terminologies in these first hands that we're going to, he says, you know what, in, in many ways they're both inadequate. These terms are also, in many ways, somewhat misleading and unhelpful. Because many in the complementary view also have a high value of equality. And they say, no, 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 we really have a high value of equality in terms of people's worth and so on. So they would argue and embrace that part of the other. The egalitarians would also say, well, we also sense that there is some complementary elements within Scripture and that we see that God is teaching, and so we also hold on to some of those. And so... It's not fair to say that they hold exclusively to those terms that they might identify themselves with. There are parts of borrowing and identifying that they do. That's what I mean. I would, I would say, you know what, I don't find those terms that helpful. And maybe it's just part of my age. And I'm sort of right in between the baby boomers and the baby boxers. So I kind of straddle the line. And uh, because of that, I've always hated labels and titles. It's like, don't put me in a camp. Some of you identify with that. You resist those things, too. And so when I look at these terms, I sort of go, you know what? Don't put me in either camp. I don't really feel that I fully identify over here, and I don't fully identify over here. But there are some convictions, as I say, that I come with that I will share in just a minute. I'm not going to right now. But I do agree that these terms do become sometimes challenging and unhelpful when they sort of paint people into a camp and even ourselves and in very rigid places that Maybe a more helpful way of thinking about it and talking about it is how is it that we come to it? Now, in this text, obviously it's a restrictive view of the text. There's no doubt about that. That comes through very clearly. But it really comes down to this, this question. Is this a restriction that Paul is giving for all times and all cultures, or is it a restriction that he is speaking into a very specific context for this time and this place and instructing Timothy about what's going on in the church? Understand the restrictions that are given and the ways that Paul is addressing them. Now, I said that I would share with you some of my own Bible. Because if I'm encouraging you to reflect on your Bibles, I also have to reflect on mine. So let me just give you a few of my Bibles that have shaped me, have shaped me, given to shape me. Uh, and I could mention many, I'll just mention the main four. First of all, the church that I grew up in, the more conservative, My parents and their family were ones that typically sat in the middle, and so I was sort of in the middle of these two camps. And I'm kind of interesting that there's all women over there and all men over here, and that was the church that I grew up in. So I don't know exactly how all that shaped me or influenced me, but it's just one of the biases that I have to acknowledge that is part of what I observed and saw and did. Another bias that I would have is, is this church right here. 
having been here for now for 14 years, and my wife having even grown up in this church and my family being a part of this church, the influence of this local congregation has probably shaped me even more than I would recognize. And, and for the large part, this church has had a more permissive approach when it comes to non-restrictive approach to women in ministry. We've had women, we have women on our leadership council, have for many, many years, ever since I've been around here. We have a woman moderator right now. We have had a woman moderator before. We have had women who stand at the pulpit here who have preached and have done that numerous times over the years. And that happens uh, not regularly, but often occasionally. And so that has happened, and that has been part of even the shaping and maybe even part of what I identified with and part of coming to this church, but it also has one is I have four daughters. Now there's a vibe. I mean, if I would have had four boys, would it change some of my bias in thinking I ought to vote? I'm not sure. But I just have to be honest with that. As I think about my girls growing up in the church and serving in the church, that's just a bias that I have to hold out here and say, okay, that's just one of mine. Own it. And that's part of what I come with. And lastly, I'll just mention, and there's so many books on this topic from all different sides, but I will mention one book that is a bias that has shaped some of my thinking, and also probably a book that I would say, as I read it, it was one that I went, yes, this is, this gives language to how I have thought for many years. It's a book by Scott McKnight called The Food Paradox. So if you are interested in that and you want to read more, I would recommend that one, which I think is a very accessible book, uh, and it, it, it's part of what has shaped my so the next part is my conviction. Again, I'll just be right up front. Here's some of my convictions as I come to this text. While I don't necessarily like being placed in either of these camps, I do believe that this text um, really, what, what really matters in here is context. That the context of what's happening in this culture, in this church, is very significant and very key to understanding why this is important. So I would come at it with a more permissive view. I would come at this text, my understanding and my convictions would be with the, with the more non-restrictive view when it comes to women serving. And we do have to discern what it is that is cultural, is something for all times and all places, and we use different ways of doing that, but it, we use interpretation guidelines, we use the tradition of the church, we use the community of believers, the power of the Holy Spirit, we use all of Scripture itself, and so on. But I do come to this text with a conviction while something is going on here, that Paul is speaking in a very specific context. And so making really quick applications for today, we just need to both talk more about those convictions and apply them to our own lives. But I also want you to know that even as I have my own convictions and my own convictions, I offer them to you humbly. And I also say, you know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I do think that Scripture, as we look at it, leads us understanding of the context can be so important as to how we uh, think about it and how it plays out in the church, not just in this text, but in texts and all of the texts throughout the scriptures. So let's go deeper into the broader context and, and talk a little bit more about that. So when we think about scripture as a whole, we think about going even from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And if you look in the Old Testament and do some reading and research about the role and the place of women in the Old Testament, not only were their roles incredibly restricted, but even women's value was just so low in the Old Testament. So even things in 
like the Mosaic Law where Moses sort of gives this certificate of divorce, which is a whole other topic. But I want to mention, mention that simply to say that even that of, of saying, you know what, you need to give a certificate of, of divorce, it was in a sense affirming women and the value of women and the role of women is he's saying you, you can't just sort of divorce a woman outright for anything, which was part of that culture in those days. So there's this elevation of women that happens in the Old Testament and this trajectory that we see starting in the Old Testament that also carries over into the New Testament. When you see Jesus' ministry, Jesus affirmed women in a way that would have been theft, in a way that would have been so unsettling to the cultural norms of that era. And, and so his teaching on women would have, would have been revolutionary in, in many ways, as he had a more permissive approach to it. He, he challenged prevailing unjust practices against women. He taught a whole new paradigm. He heightened the value of women. He had women who, who were with him in his, in his ministry, who were disciples, not the original 12 disciples, no, but, but who walked with him, who supported him, even financially out of their own means, and who were part of the contingent that he traveled with. And we see that in Scripture. Then we come to the Apostle Paul, and we see that Paul, too, was more permissive. Even in that text that we already read about neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, that we are one in Christ. And Paul also had female co-workers in Philippi and Rome, and he even promoted them to their leadership. And so we see part of the broader context of, of this trajectory of women in, in their value, in their worth, and even in their roles in leadership as, as increasing and allowing so we see that as part of the background. What's interesting is that neither Paul nor Jesus overturned cultural norms in many ways at all. At least not one of the ones that we would think that were, would be obvious, like slavery. Like, why wouldn't you just abolish slavery? And yet, they didn't. They didn't even really speak to that. They talked about people who were slaves and who were slave owners. And they said, here's now how you need to live as a follower of Christ. But, but they didn't, by and large, take some of these cultural norms and just sort of overturn them in a radical way. It's sort of like they, they worked within the culture. They didn't want to shift the focus away from God's redemptive mission and the bigger purpose that God has. In Paul, he had a, a great passion for contextualizing things. I mean, there's no doubt about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 19 and following, Paul says this, this famous passage. He says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. And when I was with the Jews, I lived like the Jews to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived, lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law. I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness. When I want to bring the weak to Christ, yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. And I do everything to spread the good news and to share Christ. So Paul was extremely concerned about contextualization, of, of, of bringing the gospel into a context in a way that made sense, and adapting to that context, not compromising the truth of the gospel and the content, but having it expressed and shaped in ways that make sense in the culture so it didn't discredit the message. And at times, Paul also said, you need to restrict the preaching. So even though he was one who encouraged
encourage freedom, to talk about freedom in Christ and, and upset so much of the old Mosaic law that was there. He also said at times, you know what, you need to restrict your freedom from time to time. So there's this text in, in uh, just earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And he's talking about this whole idea of the food that was sacrificed to idols. And, and after that, could you eat that food and not eat that food? Is that a religious thing to do? Is that appropriate, inappropriate? And Paul is instructing them on that and saying you have freedoms in this. But then he says, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. So there's a number of places in Scripture where Paul says, yes, you have freedom in Christ. You know what? Sometimes you need to restrict your freedom. Sometimes your freedom also needs you to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. Simply for the sake of the gospel. Because for Paul, his, his bent and his passion was so strong on this missionary impulse, this desire to have people understand and know the gospel, that sometimes they needed to restrict their freedoms. The very freedoms that he was preaching and preaching back. Another part of the broader context that was going on at this time with this church in Ephesus and with the authorities in Rome was that there was almost like a gender revolution that was going on. And, and so in, in our class, some people were talking about the 60s and the sexual revolution of the 60s. I don't know, maybe it was something like that. But there was a, a term that comes up even in historical books that are that are outside of Scripture. It's, this term is not in Scripture, but outside of Scripture, historical books talk about a new Roman woman. And about, in that time, there was this sort of this sexual revolution where women were sort of abandoning some of their traditional roles of getting married and, and uh, having children and so on, and they were dressing provocatively, and they were doing all kinds of, taking all kinds of license in the broader culture. This is part of the broader background. So much so, and Rome was, was nothing of a place of, of prudishness. I mean, everything happened in Rome. But this was so extreme that even Caesar at the time ordered some rules and some laws that came into place about how decent women had to dress. Like, you were going way too far, so you need to dress this way, and even instructed how prostitutes needed to dress so that they could be differentiated from men. Interesting. So this is part of the context of what Paul's writing in. Now, how much did that influence this? We're not exactly sure. But this is some of the backdrop because we all are influenced in some way. So, to the specific context here, Paul is again speaking to Timothy. He said, we've been entrusted with this gospel. We've been entrusted with this good news of Christ. Live in such a way that people will come to faith in Christ. And in fact, in verse 4 again, he says, you know, this, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. He's saying, live in such a way that you don't compromise that saying, you know what, there's, there's all these idle conversations and false teaching going on. And he's saying to me, you need to address some of this stuff because it's confusing people, it's disrupting the church, and, and it's even discrediting the church's witness in the broader community. So there was women in those days who would grab the podium even in public settings and, and want to speak out and, and so on and so forth. So all of this stuff is part of the backdrop in general and also specifically. So Paul is challenging Timothy and saying, you know what? You need to be aware of the danger of false teaching. You need to make sure that you are teaching orthodox sound teaching. He said, don't compromise that gospel. Live in such a way. Conduct yourself in such a way. Worship in such a way. Pray in such a way. Live amongst your neighbors in such a way that the gospel gets traction and that's that it goes forward. So over and over again, we see this missionary impulse, this missionary heart that the Apostle Paul had, 
comes through not just in this text, but in all the different letters that he writes to other people. There's also an interesting quote from Jacques Day, who said, men were the only ones who would have been taught to preach. Who would have been instructed and, and given opportunities to preach. And so women, because of their place in that society, they didn't have the opportunity to learn. They didn't have the opportunity to teach because that wasn't part of their culture. So all of this is the background as we come to this text. And so as we look at that, when we look at this text, we realize we have some responding to do. We have some reflecting on what it is that we grab hold of and say, yeah, this applies for today, and what is it that was more specific to that time? And, and Scott McKnight in his book, he, he uses the phrase, he says, we all pick and choose, or we all adapt and adopt when it comes to Scripture. Not because, not in a such a way that it, it's sin and we just want to sort of let it go, but because we believe that it doesn't necessarily apply to the present. And his point is, is that we all do that, so we need a pattern of discernment. I could give you all kinds of Scripture texts where you could see that, well, we actually don't follow that anymore. We don't do that. We do this. And so, I, even though I could go all over Scripture, I'm just going to stay focused right in the text itself. And so some might say, well, you know, if the Bible says it, that settles it. Simple as that. Sometimes that can be very important to do something and not an accurate way to approach But on the other hand, to say, well, all things are cultural, everything's sort of up for grabs, uh, is not right either. We need to have ways of discerning and saying, what is it that is specific to the time? And what is it that we take and carry over for the generations and cultures to come? So let's just look at this text. I just put it up, and you've got it in your, in your handout as well, too. There's this little quiz that you can have. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting if we just did this quiz. Well, what are these points? And I just have eight points that I pulled from this text specifically that is really clear teaching and that you would say, yeah, that applies for today. That is appropriate and good, and we need to still do that. And, and while you're doing that, you're thinking, well, maybe some of this is cultural. So you can pull out your sheet. So the first one, and, and you can just do it if you can. And if you think this still applies today, just put a little check mark beside it, okay? So men should pray with hands lifted up. That's the first one. Now, I have not seen in a long time men praying with hands lifted up in our service. So I think it would be hard for most of us to check that box and say, yes, that still applies today. We still all, we need to do that because we break that one then all the time. Okay, so that one we kind of go, okay, don't know if that's appropriate. Okay, men should pray without anger or disputing. That's number two. That's in this text. Okay, that one's a good one. Yes, check that box. Men, you should not be fighting when you're praying. That really doesn't work well. Um, so don't be fighting and dispute. Don't have anger. That's a good thing. We need to check that box. So, yeah, that's good. Uh, women should dress modestly. We might check that one. Okay, some of you are giggling on here. Yes. Uh, maybe we would check that one. We would probably agree that that's probably a good thing to, to bring forward. Then the next one. Women should not draw attention to themselves by their dress or hair, nor wear gold or pearls or expensive clothes. All the husbands right now are saying, amen, check that box, absolutely. But we really couldn't, with integrity, check off that box, could we? I mean, we couldn't. We don't live that way. And so we are picking and choosing. And then it, if we go to the next one, it says, uh, women should be devoted to God and to do good things. That's a good thing. We would check that. That makes sense. We like that one. Women should be silent and submissive. Okay, now what do we do with that? that to you if you're going to check that box or not. Women should not teach men or have authority over them. Same thing. Okay, that's the crux of what we're talking about here today. Women should be saved through childbearing. And just to be provo- 
negative, I put in brackets, not by grace. Okay, now, Paul is like, what is going on here? Like, Paul, I mean, his huge theme in Romans and all over his letters is Paul, that we are saved by grace. Okay, and, and now he's like, women are saved by, you'll be saved by childbirth. And you have to ask the question, okay, there's something else going on here. What is it that we are missing? What is it that we need to understand in, our, in the context uh, that we need to dig deeper in? So if you do that little quiz, I mean, I think we can come to only two conclusions, really. First, either we have to become radical literalists, where we apply absolutely everything as we read it in Scripture. But none of us do. Nor is it the appropriate way to read Scripture. We need to read Scripture literally the way it was originally intended, yes. But we also have to understand the way it was originally intended. So we either do that and become these radical literalists who live that way, or we admit that we pick and choose. Or we all have to admit that we do pick and choose, adapt and adopt, whatever you want to say, that there are some texts that we say, yes, that was for then and is also for now, and there's other texts that we go, that was something to do with that context, or that was not intended to be something that we transfer today. So we have a responsibility to bring it to fruition. What is it that the scriptures say? And meaning that we look at all of scripture. We look at the context of the text. We look at it with the tradition of the church. We look at it in community with each other. We look at it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we wrestle with these texts. And we do the hard work of working it out. Working out our salvation. Working out our understanding of the scriptures. How do we apply it? What else is going on? So let's go back and just walk through these texts again with some of this conversation in mind. So in verse 8, where Paul says, In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and contention. We know that when there's anger in our hearts, when there's fighting in our lives, it doesn't lead to a good thing. So we can see that that would apply for not just men, but for women, for all of us. That that would be applicable. That principle of being free from anger and controversy would be so important in matters of worship verse 9 and 10 where it says, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent, appropriate clothing, not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. The encouragement of dressing modestly. Verse 16, what does that look like in our culture today? Paul is saying, don't dress in a way that discredits your witness. So how do we apply that? We could wrestle with that this morning. What does that look like today? How do we dress in a way for women and for men of way that doesn't discredit our witness. And this whole idea of focusing more on good deeds, focusing more on what's on the inside. Be devoted for God, to God. Don't flaunt your freedoms. Realize that people are watching and people are judging. And they need to be aware of that. And those are principles that we could carry over and say, yeah, yeah, how do, how do we do that? How do we live more fully devoted to God? Then verse 11 and 12, women should learn quietly and submissively. Paul says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. So again, understanding the context of this. Paul is saying to Timothy, you know what? You've got a young church, these early believers in here. And there's these women with these newfound freedoms. And they're, they're stepping out in their freedoms and they're exploring those freedoms. And it's disrupting the church. And what's interesting is he actually says in front of them, he says, women should learn. Like even at this early age. He's affirming women, you need to learn. You need to become learned and educated. And I would guess that Paul would say the same thing of men who are not learning. He would say, you know what, you need to be silent in the church too, but that wasn't the issue that was happening. Because he's saying we've got these false teachings and false doctrines and, 
And we don't need people who are teaching who haven't studied and learned. And so you need to be silent and listen. And oftentimes it was the men. The men were the ones who were taught in the synagogues. And so even this idea of, you know what, you need to listen to your husband. You need to sit before those who are learned and learn before you teach. I think there's good wisdom in that. There's some applicability of that, even in our context today. And then we get into the really difficult text of 13 to 15. For God made Adam first, and after he made him. And it was not Adam who was deceived by the serpent. The woman was deceived, and it was sin, and the sin was the result. Um, but women will be saved from childbearing, assuming that they continue to live in faith, love, and holiness as Jesus did. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because there is one section of this text that even the commentators would just go, you know what, here's what it could be, but I don't know. This is the area where some of that becomes relegation. I mean, it just seems like such a sexist statement. It just seems so out of place, so outrageous, so, you know, nonsensical. It's like, what do you do with that? So for those who have more of the complementarian view, they would say, well, it, it talks about the creation order of male and then female. And so that's why these texts apply even to today. Others, commentators say, well, it's a response to false teaching that there's this era of this new Roman woman, and, and some might have been talking about how Eve came first, and then Adam, and it's a corrective fact, maybe. Then even in verse 15, this idea of, you know, childbearing, what role does that play? There's something that's going on, because Paul has taught over and over about we are saved by grace, and it's obvious that this is the case. Some commentators talk about this birth being, referring to a birth, the de-birth of Jesus Christ, and, and how the birth of one that, that saves all people from their sins, maybe in the first instance, because of the grammar and the outcome of all of that. For some, it's saying, well, it's related to this Genesis account of this battle of the, the serpent and the offspring, and how there's a parallel, and there is a parallel between Genesis chapter 3 and also this Timothy text that we see. Others say that it's, it's more of like a typology of, of Adam, and that there is a type that is being sort of identified here, of Adam being a type of Christ and Eve being a type of the, the church. Now, Paul is maybe elevating this conversation to that level of understanding and that Jesus and the church are not the same. We could debate a long time about how to understand those texts, but what we have to understand is there's something else going on here that we're not beginning to understand. And so again, how much of this is sexist? Given Paul's passion for mission and for the gospel and his willingness to adapt cultural practices, Paul use today be more restrictive toward the church and more inclusive? I wonder. Scott McClank, in his book, he feels very strongly that Paul's views could have been more counterproductive. And he, he talks in the very closing pages of his book, Looking Spiritual, about his conversation with one of his scholarly heroes, F.F. Bruce, who is uh, one of the great theologians of our day who has since passed away, but he is a, a very widely known evangelical scholar. And, and uh, Scott McKnight talks about in 1981 having this conversation with he and F.F. Bruce and, and wanting to ask him about these texts and these questions. So McKnight says this, what do you think of women's ordination? F.F. Bruce says, well, I don't think the New Testament talks about ordination. Scott McKnight says, well, what, what about the silencing passages of Paul on women? F.F. Bruce says, well, I think Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew he was turning his letters into prayer. Scott McKnight says, well, what do you think then about women in church ministry? F.F. Bruce responds with some humility. Whatever does good for you is good for me. 
this perspective and conversation. To ignite conclusions and convictions about with this idea that these restrictions were helpful to those who were not yet ready. Because of the disruptive and negative impact of the gospel to that group, Paul had a missionary purpose. That he was all for the spirit-led gifts on the part of women. That he had this liberating impact. That's how we are to think. That this is how we are to understand these problems. And what are your priorities? What are your convictions? And I hope that as you gather together as families, with friends and small groups, that you have taken even years of study guide and, and wrestled through that. I know our small group is meeting tonight, and we'll be talking through these texts about our biases and our convictions and some of those that we can add on to the sermon. I want to just end, and I am out of time, but I'll just mention two perspectives. We're part of our Mount Brethren conference, and I want to just give you two quick pictures, and we won't put up all the slides, but if you go online and on your sheet it just says, you know, Google, do a Google search, and you can find all this up online. But in 1879, our official MB conference position was this, that sisters may take part in church activities as the Holy Spirit leads. However, they should not preach nor take part in discussion in business meetings and lectures. Okay, that's the first one. I'll skip over the one in, in 1981 uh, just because it's longer and it, it sort of progresses a little bit more non-restrictive. And then in uh, 2005, there was a study conference on this very issue. And in 2006, you can see it on the website, it says this statement. It is evident that individuals and congregations practice a diversity of convictions based on different interpretations of Scripture as it regards the church's freedom to call women to serve in ministry without compulsion. On this non-confessional issue, the Board of Faith and Life recommends that the conference bless each member church in its own discernment of Scripture, conviction, and practice to call and affirm Christian men and women to serve in ministry without compulsion. I remember when that came out from the study conference, some people thought, well, that's a cop-out. They didn't take a position on this. But in a sense, they did. And in a sense, they did what Paul did. They said, you know what? You need to discern in your context what is right for you when it comes to this issue. And that's why even as a Mennonite Brethren Conference, we have churches who have a more restrictive view. And we have churches who have a more non-restrictive view. And according to this, the conference says that's okay. We're going to allow for that because of the ways that we think about Scripture and how we discern it. I'll leave you with three applications of what we said tonight. And there could be many more. But the first one that strikes me is that we need community. We need each other. We need to study Scripture in community. There's that wonderful term called community that's renewed us of understanding the Word of God together in community, that we don't just do it in isolation. You know why we need each other? Because we all have biases. And I need you to hold up the light and hold up the mirror to my bias to say, well, Bruce, Bruce, have you thought about this? And you need me to hold up a mirror to your biases to say, well, have you thought about this? This is part of our church. And that's part of community. And when we talk about our desire to be a covenant community, first and foremost, that we are a covenant community around the new covenant of Jesus Christ, his blood and his body that was broken and shed for us. But also that we are a covenant community that, that sharpens one another, that challenges one another, that encourages one another on to love and good works. It helps to shape our thinking and understanding that we have people that are together who have seminary uh, degrees and, and you know, backgrounds. We have people who understand first languages. We have people uh, who come together and we study Scripture together with the Holy Spirit present amongst us. We, we study with the tradition of the church and different translations, and we need community to keep us grounded and keep us centered. 
that's one of the things that, for me, is an application of that we need to reach out to people. We need to have really good, passionate conversations with people. The second application is, is that how we worship creates a ripple effect. How we do what we do as a church matters. In this context, people will watch it. In our context, people will watch it in heaven. People pay attention to how the church responds to one another. And so, some people just see the church as a place of where it's all legalism and rules. Other people see it as, well, it's just a place of false running. People, they'll be talking a good game, but they really put on a different face and social work and all that kind of stuff. Do we have an authentic worship and prayer life that doesn't just happen on Sundays, but that can bathe into every day of the week, into our workplaces, into the families, into all of the different settings that we find ourselves in? Do we really believe the hope of the gospel that we have? So we need to be culturally sensitive about how we respond. And then lastly, finally, I would say we need to set free the gift We need the church to be the body parts, to be people who use their gifts and serve in ways that, that work in the body. Again, sometimes that means restricting some of those gifts. And so in right settings, in right ways, and sometimes it doesn't mean a free-for-all. Paul talks at length about, okay, we need to have ordering in worship. Dale talked about that as we met in communion. I love the text that talked about that in communion. You need to do it in a way that works in your setting, in ways that make sense in your setting, but to free the gifts. And some people are are very aggressive and like, I want to serve in the church and I want to use my gifts. And it's like, you know, why don't you put me up and give me a mic and let me sing and you know, allow the body to do what it is. You know, so sometimes we need that community hermeneutic and study and so forth. So, so we, we need people to be eager for sure. But on the other hand, you have people who are so timid and so shy and they go, you know what, nobody's ever asked me to do that. And they keep waiting for people to ask. And, and you need to go beyond that as well and kind of step out and take some risks test your gifts, and I hope and I pray that this church is a place where it is safe to test your gifts, to develop in your gifts, to grow in your gifts with one another. That we would be that kind of community that we would free people to use their gifts and make a difference in the world to proclaim and live this gospel that we find ourselves in. Heavenly Father, I thank you Thank you for scripture that just comes alive in this incredible text that is living and breathing. And as we study it together in community, as we talk to each other about it, Lord, you give us light and insight. Lord, would you teach us how to live? Would you help us to be the community that studies the word of God together and lives the word of God together? That isn't afraid to have these difficult conversations. And Lord, forgive us where we restrict people from using Help us to set in motion a context that is safe to discover their gifts, to use their gifts, to grow in their gifts in ways that glorify you, that just make a difference and honor you and bring glory to you. And Lord, I just pray really specifically here today that, that you would speak into the hearts and minds of each one of us. I know that there are people in this room who have very different views of the word of God. God, may we walk with Christ in that. But God, where there have been situations where people have used this text to put on the cover of their sermon or their preaching, 
break out into even deeper praise and worship of you. And God, I pray that you would help us to truly be your people every day. Help us to sharpen each other in the love of Jesus and live out a praise that brings victory to the world, that is possible in this city and possible in this world. We live in a city and in a world that needs to hear your gospel. May we live that out. May we proclaim that out. Faithful to your word.